This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. This November, the magazine has been hosting Bookmatch, its annual virtual fundraiser. In exchange for a donation of any size, as little as $1, N Plus One will make you a personalized reading list of 10 books based on your answers to a sort of personality quiz. The books come recommended and blurbed by a host of great writers and thinkers, including Astra Taylor, Vivian Kornick, Nikhil Saval, Rachel Kushner, and many more. I took the quiz myself and got recommended Crabgrass Frontier, The Suburbanization of the United States by Kenneth T. Jackson, which I have read and is amazing. N Plus One is not just an amazing magazine. They can read my mind and stare into my soul. Try it yourself before November 30th and help support N Plus One's ambitious and risk-taking writers. You can find the quiz at nplusonemag.com. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is part two of my interview with the historian of foreign policy, Piero Glieses, on his book, Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991. Visions of Freedom tells the incredible story of Cuba deploying a massive military and social aid mission to defend Angola's government against a U.S. and South Africa-backed effort to overthrow the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or MPLA. If you have not yet listened to episode one of my interview with Piero, hit pause now and do so before listening to this episode two. Again, this episode is part two of my interview, and it will make a lot more sense and be far more interesting if you listen to episode one first. And a reminder that I've posted a link to some of the maps from Visions of Freedom in the show notes. If you're not super familiar with Southern African geography, I encourage you to check out these maps. Before we get rolling, if you already support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig, I hope you're getting our new newsletter in your email inbox. If you are not yet receiving it, please go to the Patreon website and make sure that emails from Patreon are forwarding to the email address where you get emails. If you do not yet support The Dig and patreon.com slash the dig, you can read our newsletters for free at thedigradio.com. But take a look and then sign up to support us at patreon.com because then you will get our newsletter in your email inbox, which is a much better way to get it. A contribution of any amount and you get that newsletter. If you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books, a mug or a tote bag. But the real reason that I want you to support The Dig is because we depend on your support to put out this podcast every week, okay, almost every week, and to pay all the people who help put it together and to put it out there unpaywalled 
absolutely free for anyone and everyone to listen to, regardless of their ability to pay. So if you do have the ability to contribute, please do so at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here is part two of my interview with Piero Glieses. Piero Glieses is a professor of American foreign policy at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He is the author of many books, including Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and The Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991. And, most recently, America's Road to Empire, Foreign Policy from Independence to World War I. Cuba understood that it faced a serious threat from the United States, maybe really from the minute the revolution took power. Castro knew what the U.S. had done in Guatemala in 54 when, as you mentioned earlier, the U.S. had exploited democratic openings in Guatemala to overthrow social democratic president Jacobo Arbenz. And the threat was clearer still, of course, after the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion. And yet, Castro always sought an understanding with the U.S., even though the U.S. never reciprocated. Why? Eisenhower wanted a modus vivendi with Castro. And Fidel, I think, wanted with Eisenhower in, in early 1959. The problem is that they had a different understanding of a modus vivendi. For Eisenhower, a modus vivendi meant that Cuba would remain a client of the United States. Uh, very strict limits on Cuban foreign policy. Yes, social reform is fine, but if you expropriate American companies, you have to pay prompt and effective compensation. Fidel would have accepted, I think, in 1959, a situation like Nasser, to be independent, not aligned with any bloc, but to be independent. And so the understanding of the model Vivendi was very different. Then there is another problem. There are other problems that complicate the relationship initially. For the Americans, they believed it would be so easy to get rid of Fidel. So, you know, why to make concessions? And then you have the Bay of Pigs, and you have the failure of the Bay of Pigs. And I interviewed senior CIA officials. I interviewed Richard Bissell, who was uh, the head of covert operation at CIA at the time, and really the man who oversaw the Bay of Pigs. And I interviewed Richard Helms, who replaced Bissell as head of covert operation. And they basically said the same thing, that after the Bay of Pigs, Jack Kennedy and Bob Kennedy were like demons. There was an element of personal fury because of the defeat, which was perceived as a humiliation. And they really wanted to do away with Fidel. Basically, until that moment, the United States had crushed any challenge in the Caribbean, Central America. You mentioned one, Arbenz, there were others. And so 
it was totally unexpected for us, was contrary to our belief that what was essentially a miserable banana republic, a third-rate country, could stand up to the United States. Uh, it was also an insult to U.S. imperial hubris, and then to the personal imperial hubris of Chuck and Bob Kennedy because of the defeat of the Bay of Pigs. And you have another element to take into account, which is relevant essentially for almost every situation, the violence of American public opinion. And the violence of American public opinion and the little education of American public opinion leaves you little space to maneuver, even if you wanted to maneuver, meaning the pressure public opinion wanted the United States to get rid of Castro. And we assumed that we had the right to overthrow an errant government in our backyard. Basically, with very few exceptions, no one questioned the right of the United States to get rid of Fidel Castro. Just a tiny, tiny minority, which was not relevant for the debate. And this is, by the way, a key element that leads to the missile crisis. And eventually, McNamara uh, conceded uh, in the very late 1990s and when there were study groups about the missile crisis, and as the director of intelligence and research of the State Department, Thomas Hughes, wrote in 1963, uh, if you were a Cuban in 1962, you had every reason to expect an invasion from the United States. And if you were the, you were a Soviet leader in 1962. You had every reason to expect an invasion of the United States. If ever there was a country justified to have missiles on its territory, it was Cuba. Cuba was much more threatened than any other country in 1962. But leaving that aside, what happens is, here there is a debate among analysts. In late 1963, in October 1963, there was one more opening by Cuba to try to discuss the possibility of a modus vivendi. And this time, John Kennedy didn't say no immediately. He said, let's explore. And here you have a whole school of liberals who like Kennedy that said, say, oh, if only Kennedy had not been assassinated, then, it's the same for Vietnam, if only Kennedy had not been assassinated, then, etc., etc. The reality is that the position of Kennedy uh, before he was killed was that he wanted the Cuban to give a list of the concessions they were willing to make. And then Kennedy would look and decide if these concessions were enough to start secret negotiations. And I think that essentially at that time there was no possibility for a modus vivendi because the American demands would have been too heavy, which is to break the tie with the Soviet Union. And as a U.S. intelligence report said, 
<laughs> if the Cubans break the tie with the Soviet Union, they are really left at our mercy. So there was no, I, I don't think even with Kennedy, there was any real possibility of a modus vivendi. And uh, then Kennedy is assassinated, and the Cubans uh, will go back to Johnson to offer discussions. Johnson refuses, politically costly. And there, uh, the opening, the conversation, the tentative conversation for a modus vivendi end until 1974. The violence of the U.S. assault against Cuba decreased because there was Vietnam, the focus on Vietnam. One of the reasons why the Cubans felt such a feeling of gratitude for the Viet Cong, for the North Vietnamese, is because it diverted the violence of the U.S. assault. Cuba was no longer the number one enemy to destroy. Now there were the Vietnamese. And you have essentially a pause in tentative conversations, etc., until 1974. One thing about Cuba that was making the U.S. so upset was Cuba's active support for leftist revolutionaries throughout Latin America. But this attempt to export the so-called FOCO theory of vanguardist guerrilla revolution throughout the 1960s, it failed spectacularly in Bolivia, Guatemala, Colombia, Venezuela. What, what happened and how did Cuba change its approach to internationalism in response, including towards Africa. You write, quote, In Africa, Cuba incurred fewer risks, whereas in Latin America, Havana challenged legal governments and flouted international law. In Africa, it confronted colonial powers and defended established states. Above all, in Africa, there was much less risk of a head-on collision with the United States. Uh, You started with the FOCO theory. The FOCO theory is essentially the Cubans misunderstood how Fidel came to power. And there is a book written at the time by Carlos Franchi, who at that time, early, late, early 60s, was a kind of historian of the Cuban Revolution, Cuba El Libro de los Doce. And the idea of their understanding of how Batista was overthrown is that Fidel starts armed struggle with a very small group of people because when they land, there are more than 80, but then many are killed, captured, etc. And Fidel goes to Sierra Maestra with 11 men. And the idea was, the understanding of the cube, of the Fidelista, was these people start the armed struggle, and it is like setting fire to a dry forest, and then the people gather courage because they see this fight going on, going on, and the number increases, and it swells, etc., etc. The idea is what you need is the spark to start armed struggle. A small group can start the armed struggle, and then the people will respond, like setting fire to a a dry forest. And this is not what happened in Cuba. The reality is when the Fidel arrived in Cuba in late 56, there was a very strong urban underground, militarily much stronger than the 
a rural guerrilla in 1957. And in the, in the Sierra Maestra, there were already groups organized ready to support the guerrilla. And until 1958, Batista focused on the cities rather than the guerrillas. And at the same time, the United States didn't particularly focus. Fidel had not proclaimed himself a communist. He was able to enjoy the support of different groups, sectors of the bourgeoisie, etc., etc. And this is what they tried to repeat. In, uh, in Latin America. A small, look, if you were a young middle class, say Dominican or Guatemala, this focus theory was very attractive because it means you start the armed struggle immediately rather than doing all the very heavy and painful work of preparation. I once had a good Dominican friend uh, who had been a guerrilla and start in what we could call more a Chinese Vietnamese way. He told me that essentially the first year he went to the countryside, he worked as a peasant without even talking of politics. The second year, he started doing some political work while working as a peasant. And by the third year, he thought conditions were ripe for armed struggle in that area. And instead, with the Foucault theory, you have these urban groups who arrive in the countryside full of idealism, full of enthusiasm. The peasants don't know who they are. The peasants, there has been no political work with this small group. And having learned the lesson of Cuba, both the upper class and military in those countries and the United States don't let the FOCO develop. They immediately concentrate on the area where the guerrillas have appeared. Again, Batista waited essentially 17 months before moving in a serious way against the guerrilla. So, these guerrillas focused in Latin America were one failure after another uh, because the methodology was wrong. I remember interviewing a very close aide of Che Guevara who told me we really thought we had found the shortcut and there was no shortcut. The Cuban approach essentially was... Like And this was understood by the Americans, everybody. To have a revolution, you need objective conditions, misery, exploitation, etc., and subjective conditions that the people are ready to organize, are ready to fight. The objective conditions for revolutions were there in Latin America. The Cubans thought that the focus theory would take care of the subjective conditions, would educate the people. And so you skipped a very painful stage of political education. Again, with one failure after another, the only guerrillas that were eventually successful in uh, Central America and even were those that had proceeded in a very different way, which is first work to educate the people. So what you have is essentially, by the late 60s, the failure of the focus theory. Che Guevara went to die in Bolivia. 
believing in the Foucault theory, in this approach. He paid with his life a very sincere mistake, a very honest mistake. In, in Africa, it was different because in Africa, the Cubans went to help were very different situations. We can get into it if you want. Yeah, Cuba's internationalist involvement in Africa began in 61 with Cuba aiding Algerian rebels and then continued in Zaire, Congo-Brazzaville, Guinea-Bissau, and to defend Ethiopia against a Somali invasion. Prior to Angola, what was the scale of Cuban intervention in Africa? It was very small. What you have is this, essentially. In 1960-61, the Cubans decided they want to help the Algerian rebels. There was a feeling of kinship with the Algerian rebels because they had been fighting the Cubans against the regime supported by the United States. The Cuban Revolution was a war of liberation, not only against Batista, but against the United States. And there you have the Algerians who were fighting against another great colonial power. And it was a heroic uh, struggle. I remember myself, I was a, a young student at the time. One was impressed by the Algerian Revolution. And so there is the decision to help. And, uh, you know, if this were a play, would be a very good beginning because what you have is a Cuban ship that docks at Casablanca in December 1961. Casablanca, Morocco. Morocco was the rear guard of the Algerian rebels of the FLN. And this ship brings weapons for, from Cuba for the Algerian rebels. And it comes Lisa of Casablanca with precious cargo with Algerians war wounded and Algerian children who are war orphans who are going to study, be educated in Cuba. So you have with one ship, with one move, the two dimensions of Cuban policy in Africa, which is the military assistance, the weapons for the guerrillas, and the children and the war or and the war wounded who go to Cuba. So this is the first step. Then the second step is still Cuba, Algeria. A very close tie develops. And uh, Fidel is impressed on top of it by the fact that Bembela has the moral courage to go to Havana, uh, despite what it means with the Americans. And so Cuba decides to send a, a medical mission uh, to Algeria. The guy who was at the time the health minister of Cuba wrote me a note where he said it was like a mendigo, like a beggar helping another beggar because Cuba had lost a lot of doctors. Half of the Cuban doctors had fled to the United States. And yet they sent a medical mission to Cuba, to Algeria, because they were worse than the Cubans were, worse off, and they really deserved it. And so you have this medical mission that arrives. There is a very negative reaction on the part of, of many people, even in Algeria, because the Cuban doctors did not charge. They worked for free. Algerian doctors didn't like the idea. Many others didn't like the idea. And so you have these medical missions that continue for decades and decades and decades. And then Cuba starts focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. 
And here, there is a part of a mistake on the part of Cuba. Look, Cuba had in the early 1960s one important mission, diplomatic mission, which was in Algeria. And then Cuba had a very small presence in sub-Saharan Africa. They had an embassy in Accra, in Ghana, with an intelligent ambassador, Antralgo, but, you know, was a very junior guy, and a couple of other small diplomatic posts, and that's it. And to make a long story short, in 1964, near the beginning of the war in the Portuguese colonies, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique. You have a revolt in the former Belgian Congo. You have what seems to be a revolutionary government in Congo, Brazzaville. And uh, Fidel Castro decides, essentially, to send a mission to sub-Saharan Africa, to, to Africa, to assess the situation and see if Cuba can help. There were two key motivations in Cuban foreign policy in the third world in the 60s. One was revolutionary idealism, and the other one was self-defense. See if we can gain friends, if we can weaken the enemy, etc., etc. And she goes to Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. He doesn't know anything about sub-Saharan Africa. The people who go with him don't, go in, no, don't know anything about sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the Cuban ambassador in uh, Dar es Salaam is a very nice guy, Rivalta, but he's not the brightest of the brightest. And essentially, Che Guevara comes to the conclusion that Africa is experiencing a revolution then and there already. And so, basically, he agrees on behalf of Fidel at the demand of the rebels of the, the Congo, the former Belgian Congo, to send instructors to help the guerrillas who are fighting a government supported by the United States. Actually, the United States has created an army of white mercenaries to destroy the revolt. Under Johnson? Under Johnson, yeah. And uh, Che Guevara goes back to Havana, full of enthusiasm. And uh, Fidel reciprocates this enthusiasm, and they decide to send uh, the instructors. Uh, It's going to be the largest uh, covert operation of Cuba at the time, about 120 military instructors. And they're going to be led by Che Guevara. This is something important, because there is a whole uh, school they claim that Che Guevara basically fled to the Congo, like eventually they claim fled to Bolivia because of a quarrel with Fidel and Raul. And basically he didn't know where to go, what to do. And so he went to Africa. And this is totally absurd. Essentially, this operation in the Congo was the largest operation conducted by Cuba at the time, the most important operation. And Che Guevara was the number three of the Cuban Revolution. The number one was Fidel. The number two was Raul, who was very busy creating an army. And the man in charge of armed struggle from the very beginning, on Fidel's behalf, was Che Guevara. And so Che Guevara led this force of 125 men, more or less, to the former Belgian Congo, Congo Leopoldville. And again, 
one has to acknowledge to say there was a huge intelligence mistake. They didn't know what was going on in the Congo. And actually, when they arrived, the, the revolt had essentially been defeated. And for, for Che and his guerrillas, was almost an agony for six months. There wasn't much they could do. The contact with the guerrillas were not easy. And was an alien world. And all they could do was to behave with great dignity, respecting the civilian population, trying to teach the guerrillas fight. But actually the guerrillas were demoralized because all the victories of the Americans and the enemy, the, the white mercenary, the air force, modern weapons, etc. And in November 1965, all Chewood could do was to withdraw from the Congo at the request of the rebels themselves and of the government of Tanzania, which was the rear base of the revolt, and that concluded that it was time to end the support to the revolt because the revolt had lost and Tanzania was exposed to too many enemies. It was becoming very dangerous to Tanzania. Now, what is the importance of this? The importance of this is that Cuba learned a very important lesson. Before you act, you really have to know what's going on. The Congo Leopoldville was a mistake, but it was never repeated, never happened again. And in the after the Congo Brazzaville and before Angola, you have one more covert operation by Cuba in Africa, which was very different. Actually, too, because there is also the one in support of the MPLA. Let's leave it aside for a moment. There is the one in Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau had the strongest guerrilla movement in Africa. And the leader of the guerrillas in Guinea-Bissau went to Havana, Milcar Cabral. And he spoke with Fidel and he impressed Fidel and impressed everyone he met, including Americans. And uh, the Cubans decided to support these guerrillas. But first of all, they learned about Guinea-Bissau. They learned about the situation. And to make a long story short, until 1974, which is uh, when the Portuguese gave up and acknowledged the independence of Guinea-Bissau, Cuba gave military and humanitarian assistance to the guerrillas of Guinea-Bissau. What does it mean when I say military assistance and medical assistance? The military assistance, again, the military instructor in the Cuban model, which is the instructor of fights with his students. And the Cubans were those who were in charge of using the more sophisticated weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, for instance, which were supplied by the Soviet Union, and to help planning military operations, etc., etc. And uh, the medical assistance is very simple. No country sent a doctor inside Guinea-Bissau to help the guerrillas. The first doctors who entered Guinea-Bissau 
to help the guerrillas were Cuban doctors. Until the end of the War of Independence, all the, Q- the doctors, foreign doctors in Guinea-Bissau with the guerrillas were Cuban doctors. And at that time, at the beginning, the, the guerrillas did not have their own doctors. It's only in the early 1970s that you start to have some native doctor who has been who has studied in Yugoslavia, in the Soviet Union. But the, the main burden was for Cuba. And I remember interviewing Carmen Pereira, a, a leader of the uh, guerrilla movement, and I remember telling me when the Cuban arrived, we knew we would not have to die because until the Cuban arrived, if you had a wounded and you wanted to take care of him, you had to transport him all the way to Guinea Conakry, the rear guard, and not at the border of Guinea Conakry. You had to go to Bokeh, a town at a certain distance from the border where there was a hospital. So all of a sudden you have the Cubans, and the role was great. And there is a very beautiful speech, I think it's in the late uh, 1970s, by the president of Guinea-Bissau after independence that says, uh, yes, we received the help of many countries, etc., but only one country sent its children to fight and die with us, and this was Cuba. You write, quote, No other third world country offered a program of technical assistance of such scope and generosity. The comparison that immediately comes to mind is the U.S. Peace Corps, but with an important difference. Cuba's aid workers included highly skilled professionals, doctors, nurses, engineers, and university professors. What does that distinction reveal? And how how did Cuba, which remained a very poor country after the revolution. How did it develop the capacity for such a massive deployment of skilled workers across the third world? Well, uh, Cuban education was very good. And medical education was particularly good. I did myself in Cuba with Cuban doctors. So they had uh, a large number of very well-trained people. And particularly in the field of health, which was a priority of the Cuban government for the Cuban people, was the area, one could say, where Cuba, debt and literacy, was the most successful. So Cuba didn't have a problem in terms of skilled people to send. The problem did not exist. And so in that sense, it was easy for Cuba. And, you know, you have a situation start with Angola. When uh, you have the civil war, by the end of 75, all the foreign doctors and the Portuguese doctors leave. And basically, Angola is left without uh, medical personnel. And that's where the Cuban doctors arrive. Uh, And actually, the first in November, our military doctors were coming with the Cuban troops, but immediately start helping the population. You know, you even have CIA reports that talk how successful Cuba's uh, humanitarian assistance was. 
and the most successful field was uh, medical health, followed by, I want to say something else in a second, followed by education and uh, construction. Look, there was a completely different approach. The, my impression of doctors in the United States is the dollar sign. The major motivation to be a doctor in the United States is to make money. There may be exceptions, I'm sure there are exceptions, but that's certainly, and I've been living in this country now for half a century. Uh, in Cuba, the education was completely different. You became a doctor because you wanted to be a doctor. I mean, look, Cuba was the one country in the world where a university professor made more than a doctor. That money was not a major motivation. And these are the doctors who went to, to Africa. They went with a completely different culture, a completely different ethic. You know, this even created problem with the Bulgarian doctors and Soviet doctors who made money while they were in Africa. And imagine the difference with American doctors would have been. So this was... Uh, a key element of the Cuban humanitarian assistance abroad. It reflects a complete, completely different culture that was shared by a large majority of Cubans themselves. I'm sure that there were other reasons that people went to Africa as humanitarian workers because they wanted to some went also for opportunism. No one was obliged to go. But, you know, it looked good if you went, and et cetera, et cetera. But most of them went because they wanted to help. I'm talking of the period I've studied through the 1980s. And this is very significant. And these were ordinary Cubans who would leave their homes, jobs, and families for, for years. Yeah, uh, the idea was you would go for two years. A doctor in Cuba makes more than a carpenter. Although the wage differential was not so wide, was five to one at most, very, very most, six to one at that time. But the point is, when you are in Angola, you all receive the same treatment. Whether you are a specialist, a higher level doctor, or whether you are a carpenter, you all receive the same allocation in terms of little money, pocket money that you get, in terms of the food you get, in terms of the boarding you get. Your salary is paid in Cuba. You don't touch your, your salary while you're in Angola. It's paid in Cuba, whether it's placed in your bank or given to your family. To you. But in Angola, you receive exactly the same amount. Everybody, all the same. Cuban aid workers, they're all, they were also expected to take up arms if attacked, and they did so. At the beginning, not really. It is when the situation in Angola gets more difficult. That you start having serious training. The idea was essentially this. Again, not in the late 70s, early 80s, then it was kind of uh, uh, very light. By 85, 86, you would arrive in Angola 
and you would start receiving military training, women, men, etc., for about three weeks. Uh, a very hard, serious military training. And then, you know, you would go to where you're supposed to go, and then occasionally there would be military training again every two weeks, every three weeks, etc. And yeah, in some cases they had to fight. The hope was that they would not have to fight. What about the Cuban soldiers? Were were they just doing their job, or were they motivated by revolutionary internationalism, or was it a mixture of factors? It's a very good question. Look, in the 1960s, there's a covert operation that included a few hundred people. Those were people who had volunteered and volunteered and volunteered. There is absolutely no question. The first uh, operation where you start having mass, a large number of soldiers, is, of course, Angola. 1970, Algeria 1963, where you, the Cubans and more than 600 men. But let's focus on Angola 1975. Now, what happens? It, it took me time to believe it. Uh, at the beginning, I couldn't understand this. But then I saw document after document that referred to this. So what happened is essentially this. Uh, if you are a soldier, active duty, you are serving, then you are called, uh, the troops are one after one, but, you know, quickly, one after one, and you are told, uh, there is a, a mission, mission abroad. Are you willing to go? Yes or no. Because according to Cuban law, everyone has the duty to defend the country in Cuba. No one has the duty to participate in a abroad. Now, if you are asked and you are an officer, say a captain, and you say, no, I don't want to go, your military career ends there. I remember a conversation with Raul Castro, a document uh, with some foreign leaders talking about Algeria 1963 and saying there were a few officers who didn't want to go. And uh, we we took them from the armed forces. If you are a soldier and you refuse to go, you are sent aside to a military camp. You don't participate in the operation. You're not punished. But half of the troops Cuba sent to Angola were reservists, soldiers who had done their military duty and then had joined uh, civilian life. I interviewed a guy who was a carpenter Actually, I wanted to interview his wife, who was a nurse, but he happened to be there, and then I interviewed also him in their apartment, and it turned out he was the more interesting of the two, because he was a reservist of the time of Angola, 1975, he was a carpenter, and he was called back, uh, and he was asked, do you want to go? And he said no, and he didn't go. And nothing happened to him. You know, he was a carpenter. What was going to be the punishment? Now, if you were a young man in civilian life, an activist in the Communist Party, and uh, you, you were asked to go if you wanted to go, and you said no, well, your career as an activist in the Communist Youth was over. But the point I'm trying to make is essentially this. And this is a very difference with the United States and Vietnam, for instance. No one had to go. You say no. If you said no, 
depending on what you wear, there might be a price to pay. If you were a military officer, the end of your career. If you were in civilian life, again, if you wanted to have a political career, there was a consequence. If you were a doctor or a carpenter, there wasn't much. And you have this throughout. I remember when Cuba sent the huge reinforcement, 17,000 men, uh, in 1998, there was a conversation among top military officers saying that, yes, a number of people had refused to go. Not a large number, but a large a number of people. So there was this safety valve in the case of Cuba. No one was sent to jail for refusing to go in a military mission abroad. I want to turn back to the historical chronology. You write that Jimmy Carter took office in 1977, wanting, quote, to push Rhodesia towards majority rule, help achieve independence for Namibia, and, quote, promote a gradual transformation of South African society that would lead to the end of apartheid. But, in fact, what Carter did was prioritize the removal of Cuban troops from Angola above all else while he resisted ever placing any sort of sanctions on South Africa, even as South Africa continuously defied the U.S. and the U.N. over Namibian independence. Why did Carter's promise of change end up, by the end of his one term, being just more business as usual? Well, because uh, very soon... His policy was dominated by the need to show that he was a tough guy and that he was a tough guy against communists and anything that smelled communism. Now, what he did, he started, one could say, almost with a policy all azimuths on, on several fronts. Re-establish diplomatic relations with Cuba, establish diplomatic relations with Angola, focus on Namibia, South Africa, and Rhodesia. And the first priority was Rhodesia, because that's where the situation in terms of Southern Africa seemed the most uh, explosive. You had two elements in Rhodesia, humanitarian considerations and real politics. How much... Each is difficult to say, but essentially the situation is this. The Americans were terrorized that the Cubans could repeat in, in Rhodesia the experience of Angola. Rhodesia bordered with Mozambique and with Zambia, which both supported the guerrillas and were receiving very heavy blows inflicted by the Rhodesian government. And the feeling of the Carter administration, which I think was a very correct feeling, was unless we are able to stop the war, eventually the governments of Mozambique and the government of Zambia will ask the Cubans to intervene. First of all, to defend them from attacks of the Rhodesian government. But then also, they will ask the Cubans to send, to intervene in Rhodesia. And if the Cubans intervene in Rhodesia, what are we going to do? Can we intervene in defense of an openly racist government in Rhodesia? The Carter administration 
with what we claim to be. So we have to solve this war before it escalates and before Mozambicans and Zambians ask for the arrival of Cuban troops. That's what gave Rhodesia its priority. The fear that the Cubans might intervene, that Angola might be repeated. And the evidence in US in the US archives is extremely strong. And so just to underline this briefly, the Cuban threat was responsible for Carter's one real progressive accomplishment in Southern Africa, helping to secure the end of white minority rule in Rhodesia and the birth of Zimbabwe in 1980. Absolutely. And uh, there is a discussion again, what was the part of uh, humanitarian considerations. Uh, I have a friend who has written a superb book on Carter and Africa. Her name is Nancy Mitchell. And Carter said, look, you want to know what I did? Uh, You have to do two things. One, the documents that I brought to Fidel Castro when I went in a visit to Havana after he had stepped down as president. And the others read the key pages of my memoirs growing up in Georgia. And essentially what he was saying, there are two elements. One, the moral element, my opposition to racism, to segregation, etc., etc. I personally believe and the, that the, what really was the key element was the fear of the Cuban intervention. Again, this is extremely well described by Nancy Mitchell in her book, which I really suggest to people to read. But yeah, I think that it is the fear of the Cubans that kept Carter on the right road. And this was the only situation in Southern Africa. The situation in Rhodesia on the ground is getting worse. White Rhodesians are fleeing Rhodesia, which was called the chicken run. The white population of Rhodesia, which was small to start with, started decreasing because it was getting too tough. And uh, we don't want, uh, if uh, the war goes on in this way, South Africa might want to intervene, and then what? And the Cubans intervene, and then what do we do? So here you have a situation, essentially. Carter spent a lot of time on Rhodesia, was really a, the major crisis in Africa, and a very important crisis. And the Carter team worked very well. He chose a very able guy to lead the and the policy essentially, and there were no divisions with Andrew Young, and there were no divisions within the administration. The Carter administration operated very well, and that was the one successful element. It's really interesting because, you know, the Republicans were criticizing Carter for his policy in Rhodesia, which was free elections with the participation of the guerrillas. Oh, my God, he wants the participation of communist guerrillas. Oh, my God, Carter is such a weakling, etc., etc. And all these tough Republicans criticizing Carter, etc. And in reality, the one way the real politic approach to Rhodesia was Jimmy Carter, the 
so-called naive Jimmy Carter, because the situation for white Rhodesia was hopeless. There was otherwise there was nothing the United States could do because we were not going to intervene to help the white regime in a situation where you have African Americans up in arms, etc., etc. And uh, when you have the free elections imposed by the Carter administration, essentially, and the guerrilla movement of Mugabe wins, the relations of the United States with uh, the new Zimbabwe are perfectly fine. And it turned out that Carter had been more real politics than Henry Kissinger and all these Republicans who did not want the United States to force a conclusion with free election and participation of the guerrillas. But there could be no peaceful solution without free elections and the participation of the guerrillas. You couldn't have free elections without the participation of the guerrillas, which is support of the great majority of the black population of Zimbabwe. But Carter also wanted to secure Namibian independence, but he could not do that because he would never stand up to South Africa. Instead, he shared South Africa's priority of getting Cuban troops out of Angola. But the Cuban troops, of course, of course, were the only thing stopping South Africa from overthrowing the Angolan government. It's a very sad story. You had uh, people in the State Department, including Secretary of State Vance. Cyrus Vance who were in favor of establishing diplomatic relations with Angola, and who believed that the Angolan government was playing a constructive constructive role in Southern Africa in terms of Namibia, Rhodesia, and so on. Uh, But the problem is that Brzezinski, the national security advisor, Brzezinski was opposed. And uh, Carter, already by 78, was on the defensive in terms of American public opinion. He was not, he was considered weak vis-a-vis the communist threat. And this Brzezinski, when he addressed Carter, he always referred to the elections, to the domestic situation in the United States. And essentially the position of Brzezinski was, which Carter supported, the position of Brzezinski was, we will not have diplomatic relations with Angola until the Cuban troops leave Angola. Is a sine qua non. The CIA wrote men saying the Cuban troops are the guarantee of the independence of Angola because of the growing South African press. But this was completely irrelevant for Brzezinski. Brzezinski never addressed this issue of the security of Angola. And when I say never, I've looked at the record. And within the State Department, the idea was, yes, this is the wrong policy. We should establish diplomatic relations, but it's not a battle we are going to give. Uh, we are bound, Secretary of State Vance, as already to fight against Brzezinski in so many areas. And this is an issue where the president is committed. The Cuban troops have to leave Angola. It's a sine qua non. Therefore, even though we think that uh, we should establish diplomatic relations with 
Poland. It's something we will leave for the second term of Carter after the re-election. As you just mentioned, Brzezinski gained the upper hand by couching his arguments about foreign policy in electoral terms, that Carter had to be aggressively anti-communist to win re-election. But you write, quote, By the time Carter stepped down, an image was etched in the minds of most Americans, and it endures to this day. The United States was stumbling, on the ropes, pressed by an aggressive Soviet Union. The reality was starkly different. Why did Carter take Brzezinski's advice, and why— did Brzezinski's advice serve Carter so poorly? He really was a remarkably reactionary anti-communist. Yeah, and you know, here I'm speculating. Uh, First of all, there is an issue of form. I don't say it's the most important, I'm just giving you some, I'm giving some elements. When you read Banzer's memo to the president, they are very factual memos without any particular praise for Carter, just saying this is the situation, I see this, this, and that, and only addresses foreign policy. Brzezinski's memos, from the perspective of Carter, have two qualities. One, they are very servile. Uh, when you read the style of Brzezinski, it is almost repulsive, <laughs> the way he licks the boots of Carter. <laughs> And the second one is, again, what we mentioned before. He always refers what's good for Carter in electoral terms. Doing this would cost you. Doing this would be helpful to you. You never find a single memo by Bans with these two elements. Any of Then there is another thing, that Carter was an anti-communist. There is all this uh, wrong idea, essentially, about Carter. Carter was closer to start with. This is the other element that plays. One is the form, and the other that actually they are closer. Uh, Carter found it normal not to have diplomatic relations with Angola unless the Cuban troops were withdrawn. Uh, He doesn't seem to have had a single moment of uneasiness about it. I mean, you know, it was an absurd situation. The United States maintained hundreds of thousands of soldiers in Western Europe to protect Western Europe from a non-existent Soviet threat, but had to tell the Cubans to leave and just be at the mercy of uh, South Africa. People in the State Department felt that there was something wrong. But uh, Carter doesn't seem to have felt it. And if you take Andrew Young, the African-American leader who came from the civil rights movement, the aide of Martin Luther King, et cetera, et cetera. And becomes a UN, UN ambassador for Carter. UN ambassador, the first time that an African-American had a senior foreign policy position. And uh, he was the man in charge of uh, sub-Saharan Africa to a degree, and certainly the man in charge under Carter of Rhodesia. He did not get involved in Angola because apparently considered it would be a losing battle. When he was forced to resign, when he stepped down, then he wrote a very impressive letter to Carter Addressing, addressing, addressing Angola in late 79, 
It's a very beautiful letter, very impressive. <laughs> you know, he had already left. And that is the century situation. No one was willing to go to battle on Angola with Carter because the feeling was the president is committed. He's committed because of the, of the advice of Brzezinski, but also in part because he's closer to Brzezinski to start with. Reagan, of course, promised an even more aggressive and reactionary foreign policy all over the place, including in Southern Africa. But you write, quote, his focus was not Eastern Europe, where rollback would have meant war with the Soviet Union, but the Third World, where the U.S. defeats of the 1970s had occurred. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Angola, Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, Nicaragua, Grenada. And there were quite serious proposals within the Reagan administration to actually invade Cuba, which Cuba took very, a threat Cuba took very credibly. The Carter administration despite its pretensions to human rights and and everything else, was already pretty reactionary in practice. What what was Reagan's program to make U.S. foreign policy even more decisively right-wing? Yeah, let's start with Cuba. Uh, Reagan, it's interesting, because when Reagan becomes president in 1981, you have a debate within the administration whether to use armed force against Cuba or not. A debate which I think continues until early 1982. And we only know as of this debate. We know that there were people who were in favor of using force against Cuba. Uh, The Secretary of State, Hague, people in the military, and other officials. And there were those who were opposed. (laughs) And it is interesting that the group, one of the groups that was most opposed was the CIA. Because the CIA was aware of the the military strength of the Cuban army and the support that the Cuban regime would have against an invasion. And the same, most of the military. So to make a long story short, the reason why the plans uh, of a military attack against Cuba were aborted was because the CIA and elements in the military said the price would be too high in American lives. On the other side, the Cuban government, until the Iran-Contra scandal of late 1986, never knew whether the Americans would attack or not, which also forced them to keep their best weapons in Cuba, even though they were needed in Angola against the South Africans. This is one important example of a major split within the administration between pragmatists and the hard right so-called true Reaganites. What what divided those two camps, given that neither side, of course, sympathized, sympathized with the MPLA, let alone with, with Cuba's revolutionary internationalism? Well, in the end, the major uh, difference would be in terms of the Soviet Union. Once Gorbachev starts making concessions to the Soviet Union, the difference is, should we discuss and negotiate with the Soviet Union or not? And you have the true Reaganite that opposed serious negotiations with the Soviet Union, whereas the other one, the more pragmatist group, 
says, since uh, uh, Gorbachev is willing to make concessions, it's not going to be a negotiation between equals, then we might as well negotiate. What concerns Cuba in terms of the division? And Well, let's say this, but concerns the third world. The division is that the true Reaganite believe that the United States should overthrow every government that we consider to be communist in the third world. And the major difference will be Mozambique. In Africa, in the 1970s, you had this African Marxism. You know, the Angolan government and the Mozambican government, they both proclaimed to be Marxist-Leninist. It was what was called African Marxism. A lot of people in the West, including the United States, believed that one could coexist with the so-called communist government in Africa. So what was the difference between Angola and Mozambique? They both were ruled by a guerrilla movement, which had taken power. Both proclaimed to be Marxist-Leninist. The difference was that in the case of Angola, uh, the birth of the Angolan government, of the Angolan nation, had come in the context of a huge American defeat and humiliation, 75-76, and you had a strong Cuban presence. The hardline Reaganites said this government has to be overthrown. The more pragmatic people, like the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Chester Crocker, said, I'm not particularly interested in overthrowing the Angolan government. What I want is for the Cuban troops to leave Angola. And then if they can survive, they survive. If they can't survive, they can't survive. My beef is the presence of the Cuban troops. You could say in the end it would be the same because you remove the shield and the South Africans interview you. But this is the difference. Where the difference became more real, in this is the case of Mozambique, there were no uh, Cuban troops in Mozambique or any other foreign troops. And uh, you had people like Margaret Thatcher who was very close to Reagan, would say, we can coexist with the government of Mozambique. And by the way, the government of Mozambique is fighting a guerrilla movement, which is really horrible. Renamo. Terrible. Actually, Savimbi was the same, but uh, let's leave Savimbi aside. And there is no reason to support, because we can live with the government of Mozambique. And in the United States, you had the big decision. You had uh, the real Reaganites, who wanted the overthrow of the government of Mozambique. And you had the more pragmatic uh, people, like the Assistant Secretary for Africa, Secretary of State Schultz, who said, no, Margaret Thatcher is right. We can coexist with the government of Mozambique. And this is where, in terms of Southern Africa, that's where you have the real difference between the two groups, not in theoretical terms, but in practice. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com. 
and by Haymarket Books, which is currently running its annual holiday sale. All Haymarket Books are 40% off until January 3rd, including gifts for all the radical readers on your list. One book that you might like is Choice Words, edited by poet Annie Finch. A landmark literary anthology of poems, stories, and essays, Choice Words collects essential voices that renew our courage in the struggle for reproductive rights and justice. Twenty years in the making, the book spans continents and centuries, magnifying the voices of people reclaiming the sole authorship of their abortion experiences. These essays, poems, and prose, collected in a beautiful hardcover edition, are a testament to the profound political power of defying shame. Contributors include Audre Lorde, Diane DePrima, Ursula Le Guin, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mahogany L. Brown, and many more. Find choice words and all other Haymarket titles 40% off at haymarketbooks.org. Reagan's big shift on Angola from Carter was, at least at the surface level, it was to introduce this concept of so-called linkage, that South Africa would implement UN Resolution 435 to make Namibia independent in exchange for Cuban troops withdrawing from Angola. And this was a big shift, at least on the surface level, in terms of the official U.S. position, because it held Namibian independence hostage formally to the withdrawal of Cuban troops. Cuban troops, again, who had every right to be present in Angola at the invitation of its government, defending that government against a U.S. and South Africa-based proxy army or guerrilla army backed by them. How did the idea of linkage come about? And then how big of a change was linkage, given that the Carter administration had refused to impose any consequences on South Africa? Was linkage sort of already the implicit operating theory under Carter? Well, uh, the idea came in 1981 in conversations between top U.S. and top South African officials. The first important conversation between there it came. On a formal level, it was very important, as you said, because it justified the continuing South African occupation of Namibia. It was something that was openly, I mean, this is really pathetic. Essentially, you have the Secretary General of the United Nations who says in 1983, in a public speech, I hate linkage. You have the West European government who heavily criticize linkage. You have the ambassador of Canada in 1985 at the Security Council making a state attack against linkage. But these are all rhetoric. In practice, everyone accepted it. And you say, what is the difference in practice? That's a very good question because, you know, one could even argue that the difference is, is zero because uh, not even the Carter administration had been willing to adopt sanctions against South Africa. The Reagan administration uh, would have opposed. In the early 1980s, it would have made no difference. Now, by the mid-1980s, you start having a movement in favor of sanctions against South Africa in the United States as throughout the world. And their linkage protected South Africa, at least on the issue of Namibia. So eventually it became, it became relatively important, I would say, in lessening the pressure on South Africa. 
for South Africa's part, they claim to support linkage, which makes sense because it shifted the terms of the debate dramatically in their favor. <laughs> and yet, South Africa made it clear to the Reagan administration that they would never accept any outcome that led to SWAPO winning power in Namibia and that they were entirely unwilling to end their support for Savimbi in Angola. So South Africa's actual position was an entirely maximalist one that conceded nothing. Did the Reagan administration understand that? Did they actually even want linkage or was linkage merely a pretext to preserve the status quo that South Africa wanted? It's a very good question. Look, first of all, from South Africa's perspective, one could say it made sense because the South Africans believed, as the Americans believed, that if there were factions in Libya, the guerrilla movement swap would win and that a victory of SWAPO would have devastating psychological effects in South Africa by demoralizing the whites and uh, giving courage to the non-white population. Uh, And at the same time, uh, the South African government considered correctly from their point of view that the MPLA government was a cancer. And what you do with a cancer, you try to eradicate it. So from South Africa's point of view, his maximalist position made a lot of sense. In terms of the Reagan administration, yes, they understood very well what was the position of South Africa. Uh, there are a lot of internal memos, memos of the Secretary, Assistant Secretary of State uh, that acknowledge this. But above all, I mean, look, CIA reporting in the 1980s on Angola is pathetic. We had no embassy. Our, basically, we had no good sources on what was going on in Angola. You read the CIA reports, they're pathetic. CIA reports on South Africa were good. They were very good. And you have reports which are a devastating criticism of Reagan's policy because what they say is essential that the South Africans couldn't care less about linkage. The, the only thing that interests South Africa is the defense of apartheid, and that the only way they conceive the defense of apartheid is by dominating the region to eradicate any danger for apartheid, and that the South Africa intends to overthrow the government of Angola. Again, the CIA says this, the CIA is very clear. The American ambassador in Angola, Nickel, when he leaves in South Africa, Nickel, when he leaves South Africa to return to the United States, he writes a final memo which says to the South Africans for the South African constructive engagement, which is the theory of Chester Crocker, that you understand the worries of South Africa. You will meet the South Africans halfway, and they will make concessions. For the South Africans, it's a joke. It's a one-street way. The United States makes concessions, etc. Now, what can Chester Crocker do, the moderate, the so-called moderate in the Reagan administration? First of all, South Africa enjoys the sympathy of the president. Two, Savimbi, the monster, the guerrilla leader, enjoys the president, support of the president, and people very close to the president. And uh, Savimbi had, uh, of course, an office in Washington with his, his representative. 
And there is a conversation at one moment in 1982, I think, between the representative of Savimbi and the deputy assistant of state for African affairs, where the guy, the, the State Department official, tells him, look, the next time we, we, when Savimbi has a complaint about us, the State Department, we, we would prefer if you were tell to us face to face rather than going to Congress and complain to Congress and then we read it in the press. You see what I mean? Savimbi had a wonderful weapon, yet strong support in the United States. The Wall Street Journal describes Savimbi as, quote, the favorite anti-communist hero of American conservatives. Yeah, Savimbi had a great quality. Savimbi killed communists. You killed Cubans. I mean, look, in 1985-1986, the ignorance of members of Congress about Angola is immense. Their ignorance about anything concerning Angola is huge. But the only thing they knew is that there were Cubans in Angola and Savimbi was killing Cubans. That was enough. And that's why they embraced Savimbi, despite the crimes of Savimbi, which were no secret, by the way. The extent of the crime might be a secret, but that he was a terrorist engaged in large-scale terrorism was already public knowledge, reported in the European press, in the London Times, a conservative newspaper, but not in the American press. Again, what you have is the very poor quality of the American press. What was South Africa's alternative vision for its own future and for the future of Southern Africa as a whole? Well, what they hoped down the line in terms of South Africa uh, was to make uh, limited political concessions to non-white groups, meaning uh, Asians, and limited economic concessions to the black population, and in this way try to de-escalate the situation. And at the same time, and here I'm almost paraphrasing CIA reports, to dominate the neighborhood, not to tolerate any independent government in Southern Africa. And uh, in this sense, you know, the Reagan administration gave them a lot of hope. They were trying to overthrow uh, uh, Angola. They were supporting the guerrillas in Mozambique. The government in Zimbabwe didn't bother them. The government in uh, Botswana was very weak. There is nothing Botswana could do. And they had good relations under the table with Mobutu. The problem was Angola. You write, quote, the plan seemed delusional, but it had a rational core. Zaire showed the way. It was anti-communist. It had good, though unofficial, relations with South Africa. And it was hostile to the ANC and SWAPO. Yeah. And that would have been Savimbi. Uh, And that's why they were so committed to bringing Savimbi to power. You know, again, uh, official American policy was not to bring Savimbi to power. The the so-called moderate in the State Department, their goal was not to bring Savimbi to power. They were agnostic. But they knew very well that that was the goal of the South Africans. And they were working with the South Africans. And South Africa thought a Savimbi victory was possible, even though it clearly was not. Oh, absolutely. 
Was that just was that just wishful thinking? Yeah, in the end, it was wishful thinking. But you know, when you are in a very difficult situation, you grasp wishful thinking. You know, you have something that is interesting. Is the following: by 1986-87, the Angolan government had lost a lot of popular support because there was a lot of corruption, and it really didn't focus on social reform, and they couldn't protect the population. And by 1986, the guerrillas of UNITA militarily seemed strong. Now, where you have the interesting situation is this. 1987, the Angolan government decides, listening to the advice of the Soviets, to launch a major offensive in southeastern Angola, which is where you have the territory controlled by Sabimbi. Southwestern Angola, you had the South African. The Southeast was uh, Savimbi, a region of very geographically, topographically very difficult with a lot of rivers, etc., etc. And they decided to launch this offensive. The, the Soviets urged them to launch this offensive to destroy Savimbi. The Cubans are opposed because the Cubans made two arguments. One, your real problem, Angolan government, is not Tavimbi, it's the South Africans. And that's the enemy, that's the most dangerous. And this offensive in the Southeast doesn't mean anything. First of all, if you're successful, you will just withdraw into them, then you will come back. And two, there is the South African Air Force that will intervene if you're advancing. And you have no defense against the South African Air Force. Now, the point that struck me, uh, I've looked at this offensive that begins in July 1987 through the South African document. And what impressed me is that actually these uh, troops, Angolan government troops, about 11,000 soldiers that are advancing against Savimbi are successful. They are fighting better than the troops of Savimbi. They are winning. And this is something when I read the South African documents that took me by surprise, uh, by the way. This is the elite of the Angolan army, the best units with the best weapons. So the South African documents in late 87 say actually Savimbi was weaker than the South African thought. The South Africans are disappointed by the way this military campaign is developing in southeastern Angola. And that's when they, again, they, they were believing that Savimbi could win, that they could bring Savimbi to power. And now all of a sudden, they come to the conclusion that perhaps Savimbi is weaker than we thought. This brings us to something very much at the heart of the story you tell, which is the military situation on the ground and how it played out against the forces of reaction across Southern Africa. And it's a fascinating story you tell. The Soviets helped create the Angolan Armed Forces, or FAPLA, and then to arm them, while Cuba, of course, supplied its own troops and also sent advisors that focused on supporting FAPLA's smaller and more nimble counterinsurgency units. But you write, quote, here was the rub. The Soviet advisors and the Angolan military leaders wanted to create a regular army that could fight a that could fight a conventional war against a foreign enemy, including South Africa. Havana, however, believed that the FAPLA should concentrate on fighting the insurgency, UNITA, at home, 
leaving the Cuban troops to protect the country from a foreign invasion. So Cuba believed that its responsibility, in other words, was to fight the South Africans, which it could do, while FAPLA's job was to go after the rebels who were wreaking havoc, including north of the Cuban defensive line. Below the Cuban defensive line, there were no major population centers or areas of economic importance, and Cuba argued that FAPLA launching incursions in the south would just lead them into direct into direct confrontation with South Africa, which had an army and air force that could just crush them. But the Soviets insisted that FAPLA do just that. Why were the Soviets so intent on pushing FAPLA toward a conventional warfare model that did not remotely fit Angolan conditions? Was it was it just that the Soviets were still uh, stuck in World War II, or, or what was going on? I think so. Look, no one has provided any better explanation than that. I mean, the Soviets clearly wanted to help the FAPA. It's not that they were acting in bad faith. And they really seemed very convinced that that was the way to proceed, which is something which was for Europe, for a new war in Europe, you know, across the German plains, et cetera, et cetera. And they really didn't seem to have any idea of how to con- how to conduct counterinsurgency warfare. So, yeah, it's a complete and total Soviet failure. The Soviets even tried to send tanks to Swapo, a guerrilla army that couldn't make any use of tanks. Yeah, it was completely absurd. And because the Soviets were those who provided the weapons, they had, of course, a lot of influence. Now, these two crazy offenses which are launched in the Southeast in 85 and 87. In fairness, the Soviets did not force the Angolans. They didn't blackmail the Angolans. If you don't do it, then we... But what they gave was a huge promise, which is one successful campaign, you destroy Savimbi. One successful campaign and you win. And it looks very attractive, and particularly because you don't have to fight against the South Africans. They're going to fight against a weaker reed. And so they convinced the Angolans. And the Angolans went in 85 and 87. You have a very interesting exchange between Risquet, who was the head of the Cuban mission in Angola in 1987, and the head of the Soviet military mission. Uh, in Angola, General Guziev. Riske is just arriving in Angola. And he tells uh, Guziev, uh, man is the only animal that stumbles twice against the same stone. Because they made this mistake in 85, an offensive in the southeast, and the South Africans intervened, and they beat up the FAPLA, and then they launched again another offensive in 87. The Cubans kept saying the same will happen. The Soviets said, no, this time they have better anti-craft weapons. It's a different situation, etc., etc. It is true. The Angolan, the, the FAPLA fought better than in 85. It is true to the South African dismay the FAPLA were defeating Savimbi. Without the South African intervention, the SAPLA would have forced Savimbi out of the southeast, etc., etc. But 
as the Cubans had foreseen, the, the South Africans intervened with the Air Force, with special troops, and then the situation turned. And, you know, it's interesting because these Cubans, you know, what was a Cuban general compared with a Soviet general which fought during the Second World War with a lot of medals, etc., etc.? But the Cuban generals understood the counterinsurgency much better. That was their experience, and that's what they understood. And look, there is something which is interesting, and I didn't get all the documents I would have liked to get. But in the 1970s, mid-1970s, late-1970s, the Cubans start adopting the Soviet model for their military instruction, military theory. And when in the early 1980s they conclude that Reagan might invade and that if Reagan invades, they have to resort again to guerrilla warfare and that perhaps they have forgotten a little bit guerrilla warfare because it was many years ago and now the Soviet theory, etc., etc., what do they do? They ask for military advisors from North Vietnam. In the early 1980s, you have a number of North Vietnamese military advisors in Cuba. And if I remember a document, is Los Sabios Vietnamitas, que derrotaron Norteamericano. I shouldn't say North Vietnamese, Vietnamese. The white Vietnamese who defeated the Americans. So the Cubans, when they feel the threat of an American invasion, and they have lost a little bit their know-how, they turn to the people they consider the greatest masters in guerrilla warfare, and this is the Vietnamese. After these major Soviet-inspired debacles, Cuba developed this audacious plan to mobilize all of Cuba's military might so that Cuba could gain air superiority over the South African defense forces and then push its defensive line south until they push South Africa back across the border into Namibia. But the Soviets pushed the Angolans to launch one final foolhardy assault in the South. And once again, it led to disaster. The SADF slaughtered Angolan troops and pushed the FAPLA back to the town, the famous, famous town of Quito Quanavale, a town that South Africa was then poised to take. This this is a key moment in the tale you tell, and it was the decisive one that pushed Cuba to finally to, to take action with or without Soviet support. What happened at Quito, and why was it so important, even though as a battle, it really didn't have any sort of major climatic moment? What happens is the FAPLA, with the Soviet military advisors, a handful of Soviet military advisors, had advanced very deep into the southeast, close to the Namibian border, the famous Caprivi Strip. And that when South Africa strikes with their force, with heavy weapons that the Angolans didn't have, with special troops, and the FAPLA starts retreating. And it's not a route. They retreat uh, order, in an orderly fashion to this Quito Quanavale. Quito Quanavale is in reality an isolated outpost because it is only connected to Namib, to Angola, to the part of Angola ruled by the government, by a road 
which is 180 kilometers long to Menonge in the west and surrounded by woods. It's just the only link they have. And, and then you have the very small airport, the Quido Guanavale. And what you have at Quido Guanavale is the lead of the Angolan army. The Angolan army, I think, in theory, 1988, is about 80,000 men, 90,000 men. But most of them have no, no real military value. At Quito Guanavale, you have the lead of the Angolan army. And there is a consensus among South Africans, Americans, in four observers, that if South Quito Guanavale collapses, it's a terrible blow to the Angolan government. It can really change the course of the war. And uh, everyone wants the Cubans to intervene at Quito Guanavale. I mean, the Soviets want the Cubans to intervene at Quito Guanavale. The Angolas want the Cubans. They want to say, you have to save Quito Guanavale. But the difference is, the position of Fidel is different. There is this meeting on November 15, 1987, in Havana. And the minutes of this conversation, of this meeting, are about 180 pages. I read them. And the question is, yeah, we're going to intervene, but we're not just going to intervene to save Quito Guanavale. We are going to intervene to do what we want, save Quito Guanavale, and then launch an offensive in the southwest, which is where you have the South African troops. And Cuba starts sending these reinforcements. Now, what makes this Cuban decision possible? Since, look, in 1984, you have the beginning of the great popular revolt in South Africa the masses in the streets. is something that impresses everyone in the world, including the United States. This is when Americans discovered apartheid. And uh, you have two things which are interesting. One, you have the Cubans, when they are receiving South African delegation, the NC, the South African Communist Party in Havana, 86, 85, they say, you have Fidel, Raul, say, tell us about South Africa. We need to know more and tell us what we can do to help you. And the Cuban government is convinced that the first help they give, they can give, is to destroy the Angolan troops, the South African troops, which are entering Southern Africa, to attack them. But the problem is, and that has been the reason for the creation of the defensive line, that Cuba has kept its best weapons, its best troops in Havana, in Cuba, because they fear an American attack. The best anti-craft weapons of Cuba are in the island, in Cuba. The best planes, the best pilots. And 1983, 1984, and then continue, 85, 86, you have a constant refrain of the Cubans with the Soviets, give us more weapons. Give us better weapons, because we are fighting a, a war on two fronts. Including fighter planes, they're asking for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the best fighter pilots were in, were in Cuba. And the Soviets kept saying, no, we can't, we can't. You have a conversation between Fidel and Gorbachev, Fidel in Moscow in 86. And Fidel says, 
ah, give us this way, whatever Gorbachev said, yes, we are going to start it. There are moments that are poignant with the Cubans almost begging the Soviets to give them these weapons in order to conduct an offensive in southern Angola. The Cubans use almost always the same phrase, cortarle las garras a los africanos to cut uh, the funds or whatever it is of the South Africans in Angola. But the Soviets refused to give the weapons. And I think, and this also reading Gorbachev's memoirs, the reason why they refused to give the weapons is because they're afraid if the Cubans gain the upper end in southern Angola, they will move into Namibia. That they cannot control the Cubans, they cannot stop the Cubans, so they don't give the weapons. You also write, quote, Fidel Castro was motivated by the struggle against apartheid, what he called the most beautiful cause. But the Kremlin was increasingly focused on improving relations with the United States. Right. And so what happens is you have this immense desire of the Cubans to end, to defeat the South Africans in Southwest Africa, Southwest Angola, and then do whatever else is possible to help South Africa. But they can't because they don't have the weapons. And then you have in the United States the the scandal, Iran-Contra scandal, that defends uh, Reagan. It turns out that we have been giving weapons to the Iranians, etc., 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 and to the Contras illegally in Nicaragua, etc., etc. And Reagan, in 1987, has to get rid of his most hardline advisors who are the most involved in this Iran-Contra scandal. And so, by 19, when there is this famous meeting in Havana of Fidel and his top advisors in November, on November 15, 1987, it's a difficult situation because for the first time, the Cubans are going to plan without a nightmare of a U.S. attack against Cuba. Fidel says the war is not here. The war is there in Angola. Reagan has been defunct. That was such a remarkable thing to read in your book, because I often think of Iran-Contra as a case study in impunity for law-breaking American imperialists. But there's some small measure of justice that comes from it. Absolutely. Cuba could not have dared to do what Cuba did without Iran-Contra. Because you have the third element. It's the repetition of 1975. The Cubans decide to send their enforcements for this campaign, not just to save Kutukonavale, without even informing the Soviets, is a repetition of 1975. Uh, Gorbachev is obsessed with the taunt. He's obsessed with the forthcoming summit meeting in Washington. What Cuba intends to do goes against the taunt, goes in the other direction. If the Soviets were asked, they would oppose it. Now, Cuba can do it because Cuba is no longer afraid that Reagan will reply with an attack against Cuba. And so they do. And again, it's not just that they're sending the reinforcement. That would not be the problem for the Soviets. It's that they're sending the reinforcement to escalate the war, not just to save Quito Guanavale, but to move in the southwest against the South Africans. Essentially, what the Cubans tell the Soviets, we're going to do it anyway. Whether you support us or not, we're going to do it. 
And uh, as in 1976, the Soviets decided, well, they might as well support. It takes them some time. They're offended. They're irritated. But they also come to a conclusion, which is you, can, you have to be careful in quarreling with Fidel Castro because no, God knows how far he can go. And so the Soviets, in, the, in 1988 in Angola, Gorbachev behaved very well overall. He sent most of the weapons the Cubans wanted. And above all, when you have the negotiations, the famous quadripartite negotiations, Cubans, Angolans, South Africans, and Americans, uh, the Soviets don't interfere. The negotiations are led by the Cubans. Even Chester Crocker in his memoirs acknowledges it. He says Peter Castro was leading the communist train in Angola. Even though, you know, the Cubans were depending on Soviet military assistance, and the Soviets did not intervene. They were but actually behaved in a very respectful way towards the Cubans. So essentially, you have two moments in Angola, in the history of Angola, in which the Cubans intervene big time without consulting the Soviets and knowing that actually the Soviets are opposed, 1975 and 1987. And then eventually the Soviets decide, fine, we're going to accept it. And by then the Cubans had saved Angola. The Cuban military advance on the ground quickly changed the power dynamics in negotiations with South Africa and the United States. As Cuba advanced, pushed its line southward along with FAPLA and SWAPO troops, Cuba was first granted the right to participate in those negotiations. And ultimately, not only did Angola win the withdrawal of South African troops, but Namibia became independent. How did the Cuban military victory over South Africa get all of those dominoes falling across the region? Well, first of all, uh, you have the successful defense of Cuyo-Guanavale. And the successful defense of Cuyo-Guanavale begins with the fact that the Cuban Air Force takes the control of the skies over Cuyo-Guanavale. And it's the first time that the South African soldiers are fighting in a situation where the South African Air Force does not dominate the sky, but it is the enemy that dominates the sky. And in the reports of the South African senior officers from the area of Quito-Quanavale, which I've read, which are in the archives in South Africa, you see the demoralization of the South African soldiers. So the Soviet, the Cubans stopped the South African offensive against Guatemala, and then they begin the offensive in the Southwest in March 1988. And the great question, and the South Africans are withdrawing, and the South Africans are withdrawing, and the message of the commander of the South African Armed Forces, General Caldenais, which is in a meeting, in the minutes of a meeting of the South African National Security Council, what it tells the president is, if we get engaged in a major military confrontation with the Cubans, we have to be aware that our air force will be destroyed in a short time. Essentially, the South Africans lose the control of the air. And you have a situation in which 
uh, 40,000 Cuban soldiers are advancing in the southwest. And South African planes cannot fly over these troops because the Cubans have first-rate anti-aircraft weapons. The Cuba, the South Africans don't know what's going on. When I was reading about that, it reminded me of the Eastern Front during the Second World War in the spring-summer of 1944, when the Germans could not know where were the concentration of Soviet troops because they could not fly over the Soviet troops because the Soviets had absolute control of the air. And so the South Africans are withdrawing. And here you have, again, the Soviets behaved well. The Soviets knew very well that the Cubans would not enter South Africa, Namibia, on force with their troops. Fidel had promised that to Gorbachev. But publicly, but publicly, he maintained a strategic ambiguity. Exactly. And you have a situation in which Chester Crocker, who was very arrogant, berates the, the Soviet, his Soviet counterpart at the mission. And you have to tell us what are the Cubans going to do? And the mission, the mission who knows very well, says, we have no idea. We have no clue. And so in these negotiations, by the early summer of 1988, what is is dominating that negotiation is the advance of the Cuban troops to the border. There is a conversation in July 1988 in London between Chester Crocker and the head of the Cuban delegation, Horror Escape. After the plenary is over, he goes to Risque, uh, who was sitting somewhere, and when he sees Sir Chester Crocker comes, coming, he lights a cigar. <laughs> and Chester Crocker was an extremely arrogant guy who treated the Angolans like nothing. The Angolan delegation like nothing. So goes to uh, uh, Risque and says, I have a question for you. I'm paraphrasing. Will your troops stop at the border? Because they're getting very close to the Namibian border. What do you people intend to do? And Risque, I imagine smoking a cigar, uh, says, well, I cannot answer you. Uh, if I said we're going to stop, I would be giving you a meprobamato. Meprobamato is a famous Cuban tranquilizer that Risque realizes. The poor Crocker doesn't know what's a problematic, and he says, I will give you an, a Tylenol. Uh, if I say that we're going to cross into Namibia, I would be threatening. I'm, I don't want neither to reassure you nor to threaten you. The only guarantee you can have that we will not enter Namibia is that you make peace, accept our demands for uh, a, conclu- a conclusion of the negotiations. And this is what forces the Americans 
and the South Africans, neither knows what the Cubans will say. But this uh, uh, London meeting, which is really the key meeting in the negotiation, actually, before the plenary session, there is a meeting in the American embassy where the South African, it's a very high-level delegation. You have the foreign minister, Big Water, you have the minister of defense, you have General Caldenais, you have a lot of generals. And they ask two things of the Americans. One is, what will the Cubans do? The Americans have the satellite, have all the... And the Americans, if Jesse Crocker says, I will ask the representative of the Pentagon to answer, Deputy Defense Secretary, because, uh, Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary, uh, James Wood, because he represents the military, not best. And Wood says, look, we don't know. At the beginning, we thought uh, it was just a bluff, you know. There were, but now we don't know because it's such a strong uh, military group, a military force. And it is uh, element by element. They have this, they have this, they have this, they have this. So now we're beginning to think that they want to do is to enter Namibia. And if they enter Namibia, they're strong, they are strong enough to occupy the South African military bases in northern Namibia. What the American representative is telling them is the, South, the Cubans are strong enough to liberate northern Namibia. And this is the assessment of the South Africans. American documents and South African documents say the same thing. The Cubans have gained the upper hand in southern Angola. What is the situation? Because we have to uh, look at it. It's a triptych. There are three elements. One, the Cubans have gained the upper hand in southern Angola. At the same time, the South Africans are facing a growing threat of international sanctions. And third, there is the struggle of the people in southern Africa. The bulk of the the South African army is in South Africa to repress the population. These are the three elements that bring about the surrender of the South Africans. It's not just advance of the Cuban troops. Uh, it's also the struggle of the South African people and to a lesser degree, the threat of the uh, sanctions. But without the Cubans gaining the upper hand in Southern Angola, the South Africans would not have thrown the towel. And again, the South African reports are very clear on this. And the reports of the Joint Chiefs of Staff are very clear on this. The Cubans have gained the upper hand in Angola. And so what happens is not only the South Africans have to agree to abandon Savimbi, but they have to agree to free elections in Namibia. And you have South African documents in 1988-1989 that talk about how important these elections are going to be because of the psychological impact, etc., etc., etc. And they try their little covert operations to influence the elections. But there is nothing they can do. And the elections take place and the guerrilla movement wins. These elections would not have taken place, not at the time, without the Cuban victory in Angola. How did the Cuban advance change the political situation in South Africa, both in terms of black struggle and the power dynamics within the white ruling class? Or, or just to put it more bluntly, how determinative was Cuba's role 
in ending apartheid? Yeah, I'm not knowledgeable enough to really answer this in a serious way. What I can do is to quote Nelson Mandela. And what Nelson Mandela said is that the victory of Quito Guanavale uses Quito Guanavale as a symbol of a whole campaign in southern Angola, uh, gave strength to us and was decisive for the victory of my people against apartheid. According to Nelson Mandela, it was very important in terms of the psychological impact, not only the defeat of the South Africa and Southern Angola, but the elections in Namibia. Here I am I'm putting my own words in Mandela's mouth. He talks about Guido Guanavale, but I think what he means is not just about defense of Guido Guanavale, it's the offensive in the Southwest, is the election in Namibia. And according to him, it was, it was very, very important. And this happened at a very particular historical moment. The Soviet Union, of course, would soon collapse. What would have happened if it had collapsed sooner or if the negotiations over Angola had, had dragged on longer? Well, then you would have had a dramatic situation because uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union meant a terrible economic uh, crisis for Cuba. And it's a very difficult to imagine that Cuba could have supported, maintained an army of, there were about 57,000 Cuban soldiers in Angola. You know, it is interesting when you read the Cuban documents of 1988, how Fidel was convinced he could count on the Soviet Union in 89, in 89, in 1990, etc., etc. And, you know, it would have been a disaster. I have no idea what the Cubans could have done. I mean, certainly they would have tried to maintain their army in Angola as long as possible to defend Angola, but there would, would have no longer been the fear of Cuban troops entering Namibia once the Soviet Union collapses. And that would have eliminated a major motivation for the South Africans to agree. To, the South Africans would not have agreed to the independence, to free elections in Namibia. So it's really there, the timing was extremely important. And in this situation of growing crisis for South Africa, Gorbachev remained loyal to Cuba and to Angola. Not every, in, in other situations, but in terms of Angola, he behaved well. You return at the end of your book to something that historian Nancy Mitchell once observed, quote, Our selective recall not only serves a purpose, it has repercussions. It creates a chasm between us and the Cubans. We share a past, but we have no shared memories. Why is this observation so essential to understanding U.S.-Cuba relations, and then also more generally to understanding the histories of both Cuba and the United States? Because it blinds us. It blinds us from seeing our responsibility. And look, it's not just, let me give you an example of something I'm working on now, uh, which has to do with the United States and China in 1949, uh, which is essentially when the, the communists won the Civil War. And the position of the American government, the position of Dean, Dean Acheson, the position of Truman was, yeah, we might be willing eventually to 
come to a modus vivendi with the Chinese, but they have to prove it to us that they deserve our forgiveness. When Acheson dealt with the Chinese communists in 1949, he failed to understand that it was the United States that had to ask for forgiveness. That the United States had immense responsibility, guilt, vis-à-vis the Chinese people. First of all, for the way we treated the Chinese, beginning in the 1840s when relations were established. And two, because of how we supported uh, Chiang Kai-shek during the Civil War, etc. But we thought we were right, that actually we had been the protectors of the Chinese people, that they owed us. And this made it very difficult for us to understand the other side. And the lack of humility and the lack of understanding is the same in terms of relationship with Cuba. Uh, as an hour said it very clearly in a press conference in 1959 addressing Fidel Castro and said these are the people who should be our best friends because all we have done for them and what it was. You take 1898, 1895-1898 is the War of Independence of Cuba. In 1898, the United States intervened against Spain. And in American mythology, in 1898, we gave Cuba the independence they were unable to achieve by themselves against the, the Spaniards, and they were debt of gratitude. And a very good comparison for this is the American War of Independence. Eventually, the French intervened in the war. Actually, the French gave us the independence we were not be able to, to achieve on our own. And... Uh, what happens with this? They gave us full independence. What we happened in 1898, we intervened in the war against a Spain that was already exhausted because of the struggle of the Cuban patriots. And we deprived the Cubans of the independence they'd been fighting for because we imposed on them the Platt Amendment, which gave the U.S. government the right to send troops to Cuba whenever we deemed it necessary and the right to a, a naval basis. That's how we got Guantanamo. It is as if the French, intervening in our war of independence, had said, by, at the end, had said, by the way, we want a naval base like Long Island, and we want the right to intervene in the United States whenever we deem it necessary. So you see, we have, you have the misreading of history, because in American history, even now, there is this idea that we, we gave their independence to the Cubans, whereas the right interpretation, we robbed the Cubans of their independence. And in terms of, uh, if we move to what we have been discussing now, well, you have the impression that the way history is being rewritten, that we helped Angolans gained their independence and that we helped the Angolans in the 1980s. And that God knows what bad things the Cubans were doing in Angola. Whereas the truth is Cuba helped Southern Africa, the liberation of Southern Africa against the United States and challenging the Soviet Union. But history is being rewritten. And if I may conclude with one thing, you know, when you are the powerful it's very helpful. It's not being rewritten just by the Americans. It's not just being rewritten just by Western Europeans. Also in Africa, 
because there is a tendency to try to court those who are stronger. And so what you had, for instance, in 2008 uh, was an anniversary of Quito Guanavale, and you have a reception in uh, Luanda, and the president of Angola makes a speech in which he talks about the negotiations between South Africa and Angola with the mediation of the United States and completely overlooks Cuba. Whereas what happened was the negotiations between Angola and Americans on one side and Angolans and Cubans on the other, with Cubans winning the negotiations for Angola. And this is the president of Angola. You see what I mean? History is not being rewritten just here in the United States and in Western Europe. There is a tendency also in Africa because the United States, I mean, you know, the United States is the powerful one. Who cares about Cuba? Cuba has no power. You have people who are still grateful. It's really impressive when I went to Namibia, how people really remember Cuba and appreciated the role of Cuba. On the other side, in South Africa, what's happening in South Africa? Yeah, the old of the African National Congress are very grateful to Cuba. They remember Cuba, but they're not writing their own history. The, the people of the movement of Nelson Mandela are not writing the history of the liberation of South Africa. It's just the people of the apartheid regime who are writing a lot of books, one lie after the other. And so again, history is going to be is being rewritten. And for me, when I'm a professor of history, it's something that really touches me. Well, Piero Gliesis, thank you very much. Oh, let me kind of actually say something. I very much appreciate what you're doing. I very much appreciate that you gave me the opportunity to tell what I think is the true history of what's happening, which is not something that is done very often. So I thank you. That was the second and final episode of my interview with Piero Gliesis on his book, Visions of Freedom. Piero Gliesis is a professor of American foreign policy at John Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He's the author of many books, including Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976 to 1991, and most recently, America's Road to Empire, Foreign Policy from Independence to World War I. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after asking, if emancipation of the working classes requires their fraternal concurrence, how are they to fulfill that great mission with a foreign policy in pursuit of criminal designs, playing upon national prejudices, and squandering in piratical wars the people's blood and treasure? While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes most every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU here in Providence, Rhode Island. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or any such platform, also consider rating and reviewing us. 
Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends, family, strangers, anyone to listen to the podcast, why you like it, while they'll like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.